Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. This is the Build Your Network Podcast, episode 390. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the show. Today is another watch list episode. We have another uh, expert that I'm bringing on that uh, I think this is just somebody you're going to have to keep your eyes on in the years to come uh, because uh, you're going to, you're just going to be able to expect big things from, from this guy. So uh, Hans, welcome to the show, man. Appreciate it, Travis. Glad, glad to be here. Yeah. So there are a few things that I want to chat with you about. I always, always, always go back to the very beginning, build some context for everybody listening, um, so we get a little bit more of your story. So take me back to, take me back to junior high, Hans. Like you know, eleven, twelve years old. What were you up to at the time? What did you enjoy doing? What were you maybe good at, not good at? Yeah. Stuff like that. So I grew up in the Seattle, Washington area, specifically in Bellevue, went to a small private high school basically since kindergarten. So I had a graduating class of 82. Okay. So it was really small and intimate kind of world and played a lot of sports, mostly just running around either on a football field, basketball court, or playing pickup sports in the neighborhood or at friends' houses. Um, And ultimately took that sporting career into you know, some other things which we'll get into, but um, pretty pretty decent at school. Uh, not an A student by any means, but not a, not a C student either, kind of in the middle. Yeah. And, um, or did you enjoy that part at all? School? Yeah. Uh, 
as much as any 11 or 12 year old would, I suppose. I wasn't a good reader. I wasn't someone who sort of picked up books or did extra credit or anything like that necessarily. Yeah. yeah. What about um, like at home where your parents pretty academic? Did they, you know, push you to do well in school or were they just kind of like more supporting the athletic side? Yeah, my, well, my parents were pretty academic. My dad's an attorney and my mom was a, uh, had a medical license and dental license and had a practice where she was, ran a dental wow. practice for 15 years. So very highly educated then. You could say that. <laughs> yeah. So how did that translate into like your schoolwork? And there wasn't a lot to? of pressure, if that's what you're asking, to like, you know, be an A student or go to post-grad or any of that sort of stuff. But there was an expectation that you were going to do your schoolwork and you were going to do, do it well. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think that translated into other areas of your life? Uh, generally, just if you're going to do something, do it well. Yeah. And so I think that really rubbed off on me in a lot of ways through some businesses I started or my sports career, which, you know, in the, there were, there were ups and downs in school. And so when, when school was down or I was, I was really struggling, like in the fourth grade, for example, I really leaned into sports as sort of my identity mm -hmm. and something that I got joy out of, but like spelling was really a challenge at that time, yeah. you know, and then I had to do some extra work and figure out some ways through that, this, those sort of learning challenges. So coming out of high school then, college, no college? Yeah, so I went to, ultimately went to the University of Washington. Okay. In high school, I told you I had a small school. We had a lot of really small intimate sports teams. Uh, I think we were 1A, which is the smallest in Washington State at the okay. time. And I just really didn't resonate with basketball or any of those sports. I also grew late, so that sort of precluded me from participating in contact sports and that sort of thing. Okay. But I found rowing. And rowing in most areas of the country is not offered at high school. It's, yeah. it's a club, and so it pulls kids from all over the region to basically come together after school and, and go on the water and row boats. How did you find that? It was a, it was a family experience. Um, the first time we, we took a, a private lesson, the four of us, and just tried it out as a thing to do in the summer together. Really? And that, and then I just kept, kept showing up. Kept doing it. So you had to actually go find a program outside of school that was like a competitive team? Like how did, right. how did it even work? So think like you played basketball, so AAU. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a sort of outside of school, you kind of have to know about it to sign up and try out and that sort of thing. Similar sort of circumstance, but okay. rowing in Seattle is huge because there's just water everywhere. And the University of Washington has a really strong rowing uh, tradition, not just a team, but a tradition there. Mm. That's what over, do you mean by that? It's, the sport's been around long, as long, if not longer, than the football team has. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And everybody knows about the rowing team. Like, anybody in the Seattle area, you talk about rowing, they think UW. And so there's just sort of an awareness of the sport. And plus, because of the proximity to water, there's just you see it a lot. There's a lot of people out on the water competing yeah. and training. And, and so when we found that we could take private lessons through actually a recommendation of a friend of my parents, we, as a family, just did that. They signed us up and we went down and gave it a shot. Yeah. What, what about rowing was just like 
was super fun for you? Because obviously it had to be fun or else you wouldn't have like wanted to continue going in the sport, right? All I know rowing is in the context of when I do like CrossFit or yeah. when I work out at the gym and it's always the part at the very end of the workout that I'm just not looking forward to at yeah. all. You nor, know, to try to get a few thousand meters in. Yeah, so <laughs> what, what about it when you did it where you were just like, man, this is a blast. I want to keep doing this. Um, I wouldn't say that I thought that it was a blast in the beginning. I, I was... It was one of those sports that I could do that I, I had sort of a natural ability at in the beginning, but then didn't require contact or out jumping somebody or out running somebody. Like it was sort of what I was able to produce on hmm. the rowing machine or in my station on the boat and how well I could work together with some of the other people as opposed to physically or in some other way beating them. Yeah. Um, so I like that part of it. I mean, really, it was just I got into the team culture pretty quickly because I had some results that were good for a novice okay. and just kind of got pulled into some of these groups as socially as well as just physically in the boat with people yeah. and, and started to find my place and found a place that I could compete that I enjoyed competing in and took it from there. And that was in high school? Yes. So did you grader. choose the college based on the fact that you wanted to be on the rowing team? Uh, yes. I mean, I actually only applied to one school, which was okay. University of Washington. So it, my dad was freaking out for a little while because he thought I should have applied to a couple of places, <laughs> but I was like, this is where I'm going. And I, I just knew between conversations with the coaches and, you know, the scores that I was pulling by the time I was a senior, um, and some of the results that I had, I was I was pretty confident that I could get in, yeah. um, which I did, and I got some help um, from the athletic department to sort of push my application through. Oh, cool, cool. So not necessarily a scholarship, but like mm -hmm. they made sure that you could get in at least. UW, uh, as a rowing team, has a very strong endowment, and so there are a lot of scholarships available relative to other rowing programs, but compared to something like football, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, but there are there is money, and because it's a state school, as a they do this thing where they um, they go to your house, especially if you're in state for dinner, to like kind of meet you, meet your parents, but also to gauge your like financial ability to pay. Gotcha. And then the in state tuition, they you know they gave us some help, but like luckily we had some means to be able to to go to school without a huge financial burden. So yeah. um, they gave us that support as opposed to money support. Got it, got it. So you get in, is it like a you have to go through tryouts type of a situation, like regular team sports or? Yeah, so the other thing that's kind of funny about rowing is they open it up, almost all big campuses open up, uh, open tryout first day, mm -hmm. and they literally will try and grab anyone who's over six foot <laughs> and trying to get them to come down to the boathouse and try it out. That's funny. And the first day, 120 guys showed up. And the second day, about 63. And the third day, we were down into the 30s. Okay. It's pretty quickly. And, yeah. and so by the end of a week, the coach only has to cut like four people. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they start pretty wide net. Yeah. And then kind of go from there. I remember we were doing the very first day at the end of like all the insane stuff we did because they're just trying to like scare you as a freshman basically. Right. We did wind sprints on the field until someone threw up. Really? <laughs> and someone did and then they, they didn't come back the next day. So you obviously end up making the team. Yep. Um, what is the training regimen look like for something like that? It, every school is different because every coach has a different theory on training. There's basically two. One is like less work, more intensity. The other is more time, 
uh, less intensity. Hmm. And we had a training program that was like, we're, we've only got like six days a week because of NCAA rules to practice. So we're gonna like max out three hours of intensity every single day hmm. after school. So we'd meet between 3.30 or 4.30, depending on the time of the year, and just go until basically until it was dark and until it was time for dinner. Yeah, and is it like cardio? Like is it row machines? Are yeah. you in the boat? Like Pretty much most of it's in the boat because unlike the East Coast, water doesn't freeze as often up in Seattle and mm. generally on the West Coast, but um, we're in the boat. Either we're doing like technical work because there's a lot of sort of timing that goes into putting your blade in the water and doing it together. I heard someone recently describe rowing like golfers all hitting the same exact tee shot, eight of them right next to each other 230 times in a row. Hmm. So if you think about sort of that timing and the power that's required to do that, it's that's a good analogy because that's really what you're doing. It's a very kind of precise moment that's also incredibly physically demanding and intense because of just the output that you're putting into it. Yeah, so from there, where does the whole Olympic journey come in? Like, are you are you training in college thinking about, like, I wanna be in the Olympics, or how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, the, the answer is no. So from the first time I picked up an oar and got in a boat until I got into college, my, my goal was always just whatever the next thing was, so make the varsity team in high school make the freshman team in college. Um, UW attracted a large contingent of people, obviously from around the country, because we have a good program, a good recruiting tool, and all of that sort of thing, um, as well as international talent. So there were literally people on our team who had been to the Olympics before for their country oh, wow. that I was competing with all of a sudden, in national teams and all of that. So. Really, it was just, for me, always trying to make the top boat, whatever that meant. And it wasn't really until my junior year that I thought, I'm competing and I'm beating most, if not all of these guys um, who have even been to the Olympics before for their countries, like maybe this is something I can do too. Hmm. And that right around that kind of junior year timeline is when I really thought this is something I'm gonna go for. Yeah, so what what do you even do at that point? Like, I, I just don't have no idea, like, what, how do you contact people? How do right. you think about getting on a national team? How does that process even play out? So, as you can imagine, it's a really small world. So if you're producing in college, uh, you'll get noticed by the national team coaches, and that changes periodically. Um, and there are, if you don't get noticed or you kind of, uh, uh, come up later in your career, there are these opportunities called an NSR or a selection regatta, which is basically um, a race where you show up either in a single or you show up in a small boat with two people in it and you just race for three or four days in a row and there's kind of a bracket progression hmm. and you have winners and you have A finalists and you have B finalists and, and that's either you get noticed or you, or you win that yeah. and you kind of get an opportunity to come train with the national team at that point. So what was the process for you? Which one of those? Uh, I did both. So okay. I was fortunate enough to be on a couple national championship crews in college, which obviously gets you noticed. Okay. And then I was producing erg scores on the rowing machine, like a CrossFit, that were top 10 in the country. What scores? Erg. So erg. it's called an ergometer. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. we call it erg, but you call it rowing machine or rower <laughs> at CrossFit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's what were what those thing. metrics, just for anybody that works out that uses row machines? Yeah, like, so we test 2K and 6K. Um, those are kind of the standard distances. Um, for 2K, which is the Olympic distance or the basically the race distance that everyone rows, uh, I was rowing at my very fastest. I rode 545, which is a 146 point something. Or excuse me, 146, 126 point something. Wow. In college, I was a little slower, but I was still in the 127s for a 2K, which is a, still you know five minutes and change. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's 126 per 500. For, per 500. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's crazy. So, so you're getting good scores. You're getting some recognition in. But then, was it your decision to still go to those? Um, like, you know, essentially tryouts. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over one hundred and forty million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. So you have to you have to enter. You have to go show up to some of these races and you know race, race whoever shows up and, yeah. and the result of that will sort of dictate some of your success or your potential success. Mm-hmm. And, um, or you get invited because you get a coach recommendation, the national team coach knows you or knows of you and likes what you're producing and just will invite you out either on a temporary or permanent basis. And, and then it's just once you're in those in that system, it's, you know, take your opportunity and run with it whenever it comes. Hmm. What do you remember the moment that you found out that you were going to actually be on the Olympic team? Yeah, so right after college, uh, I tried out for the 2012 team, uh, which was in London, and I was cut in May from that squad. Okay. Um, How so close is that to? A couple months. Okay. It was near the last round of cuts. Okay. Um, 
I was a young guy, and I, I think that's a whole other story, but my, you have to learn a lot of maturity mm. um, on how to train throughout a whole year to be able to perform at your peak at the very end. Mm. And I, I didn't have the maturity early enough in the year. Basically, you don't want to go as hard as you possibly can every single stroke of an entire year because mm. it, it'll drain on you pretty fast when it comes to April and May. Okay. But... Um, to, so I was cut from that squad, but then fast forward four years, uh, I was out in Princeton, New Jersey, moving around with the team. We went to San Diego, we went to Florida for some training camps, and I was named to the boat uh, that was going to be given the opportunity to race to go to the Olympics because the Olympics has limited number of slots. They have 10,000 beds in the Olympic Village across all the sports and then mm. each sport is given so many entries and they figure out you know how many people get entries uh in every discipline or event like the 100 the 200 the 300 same thing um so our country did not qualify for one of those spots automatically from the 2015 world championships gotcha the year before so there's there were five guaranteed and then there were two at large bids basically and so we had to go to Lucerne, Switzerland that May to race in the last chance regatta for the opportunity to, to go and claim one of those last spots. To be in the Olympics, basically. So four years of training came down to one, you know, five and a half minute race yeah. in Lucerne, Switzerland. And crossing the finish line is when I knew that we made the team. Well, wow, that's awesome. And you guys got first at that? We did. So, and you had to get first? or we, were... It was top two. Okay. And for us, there were three boats within a quarter second. Oh, my gosh. So it wow. was tight. That's yeah. crazy. And I was up. So the way a boat's structured, it's long and skinny, and you have the bow. And I was up in the bow. And just sort of from a perspective angle, you get to you can see more from of what's going position, on. From that position, yeah. As opposed to if you're in the stern. yeah you don't see what's behind you as much. So you don't know necessarily where you are, but in the bow you do. So I was able to see what was going on and I could see the Polish and the, and the um, Italians over here right next to us. But I knew we had a seat or two on them, yeah. which was that it was, I mean, it's like that much. Yeah. And then crazy. I knew when we, when I heard the horn, we crossed the line first and I threw my hands in the air and my entire team has no idea yeah, <laughs> whether yeah. we made it. So there's like a picture of me excited and everyone yeah. else is like not sure Just what like crossing their fingers, yeah. yeah, looking at the screen or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, talk to me about the focus that it takes in that. Because like you said, it's four years of training. And really, essentially, it's a lot more than just four years, right? right? Like, it's, you know, since you were 15, 16 right. years old, uh, years of training, like right. nine, 10 years of training. Um, and it comes down to this one five minute thing, like what, right. what's going through your mind, what kind of distractions are there and how are you able to just focus on the main goal and keep that focus during that time? Yeah, that's, that, that derails a lot of people, frankly, if you, if you lose that focus, um, or you get caught up mentally in the wrong space. But it, I mean, it started with not working. Like I, I worked, I, I actually sold solar door to door kind of, and you and I have a bit of a crossover there yeah. while I was training. And I, I sold beer actually before that. And okay. I sold a couple of other things along the way because it was flexible. But starting May of 2015, I didn't work until after the Olympic Games were over in, in mm. August of 2016 wow. for context. So work is out. 
you know, and then and then you just sort of put yourself in this sort of Spartan existence where I literally had a suitcase and a backpack, and I showed up and I stayed on someone's couch, and then ultimately got a host family to let me stay in their in their spare room, um, and then it was just practice as it. I think it was like eight o'clock and one forty or one two o'clock or whenever it was, and it was just like those were the two things for the day, and that's it. Hmm. And between then, it's like sleeping, eating, and repeat. Yeah. Um, so, so I just sort of narrowed down my my possibilities for the day hmm. into training and recovering or preparing for training, hmm. and sort of mentally that can obviously wear on you because it's really repetitive. And rowing is just by its nature, it's really repetitive. Sure. Um, and it just, it can get boring, it can get a little sloggy. Listen to times. music or anything like that when you row or? Uh, on the erg or on the rowing machine, yes, um, but not in the boat. Okay. You're listening to the water, you're listening to the, the coxswain who's got a, mic- a small person in the back of the boat in the stern who's got a microphone who's calling different things and timing okay. and rhythm issues and that sort of thing. But you want your senses sort of tuned into the way the boat's moving. Hmm as opposed to distracted by music. Hmm. Um, but on the, on the rowing machine, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. generally, like I, I had a journal, I think it was like the, actually the Grant Cardone 10X journal at the time, hmm. where it had like write your goals at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, and then do some stuff in the middle. And I was always writing my goals of you know making the Olympic team, and then I wanted to be the best two seat in the entire Olympics. And you know, so I was writing at the beginning of the day, end of the day, and trying to remain focused on on that and just that act of writing it daily how, helped a lot. <clears throat> how strict are you on your like nutrition and things? I mean, it was really just like consume, just consume as much as you can to a certain yeah, you degree. Gotta, I mean, how many calories are you taking in at that point? Like six thousand at least. Wow, every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, because you're burning a lot more maybe that many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure yeah yeah. yeah yeah you just gotta be able to keep up with that diet was I I had felt like by that time which was part of my success like I had really dialed in the diet hmm. and I had experimented with certain things certain times of the day certain protein shakes you know just dinner it's it just different combinations of stuff you, you try hmm. and you see how it goes so I felt like I had a, a really good regimen down and, and we had a nutritionist helping us. So she was tra- helping us track what we were eating, taking skin calipers to do body fat measurements, to take weights and hmm. performances and all that sort of thing. And I was, I was pretty dialed in. And at that point, it's like, now you're looking for a percentage. Now you're looking for half a percent. Hmm. And it's like taking um, you know, a supplement here or taking a, um, a beet shot, like for the nitrate so it'll have a lactic acid buffer for about 10 20 seconds or whatever it was yeah. just to push that off just a little bit farther so you could go a little harder for a little longer wow and it's so it really got down into the sort of dialed in sort of diet thing well which makes sense when you're talking about a seat ahead yeah. on whether or not you're going to make the olympics you need yeah. every single little thing that you can get right exactly you win the race in Lucerne Mm -hmm. at that point what's the timeline between then and when the Olympic Games are and did your training change up or anything and during that time period so that was in middle of May and we left for the games in early August Um, so we were back in Princeton for a month and change 
and really I told you like in the beginning there's a couple philosophies on training there's high volume uh, low intensity or, or lower volume higher intensity mm -hmm. and that also changes during the time of the year okay. and so we weren't doing nearly as much volume like as many minutes or as much as many reps in the weight room or whatever it was um, but we were doing a lot more sort of high intensity focused work because we're really trying to dial in the timing at a very high output and really try and prepare our body for what's going to be you know something that really is frankly painful yeah and have to get used to the the lactic acid shock shock and the just the sort of enormity of the moment on top of all the, the physical pain that comes from athletic competition hmm. okay so weeks months leading up to the olympics what like what's going through your head at that time well, first is thank God we made it because <laughs> that would have been the first time in like recorded history. The U.S. didn't send a men's eight to the Olympic Games. Oh, really? So oh. there we were we were close. But, you know, we we made it. Um, so that was is rowing typically like something that the U.S. does well in or we've had average, our or? we've had our ups and downs. And, and the weird thing about rowing, unlike many other sports, is it's all one distance but it's different boat classes so you have eight people down to one person in a boat hmm. and so it's that 2k all for 2k okay and so a bunch of these um countries will have dominance in a certain dis a certain boat class so the great britain has a really high pedigree in the straight four for example you know there are certain individuals in new zealand or um, other countries that are really good at the single or you know the men's eight is one of those that the US because we row in college we row in high school all in eights we sort of as a culture in rowing want to see the men's eight win mm. and do well in medal and all that sort of thing. Okay gotcha. Um, historically we've we've had a lot of medals in that event and it's probably our best event on the men's side so so yes there is sort of a uh, I wouldn't even call it a dominance there because there's a couple of other countries that are doing quite well with it now. Yeah, but, but they compete. Very. It's not. It's not a forgotten. No, it's it's very much kind of the the blue ribbon event in the United States at the moment. Okay. And has been for a long time. Got it. Okay. So anyway, sorry to interrupt for that. Go ahead with what you were saying before. Um, if you remember. Where, where were we going with that? Yeah. Actually. <laughs> um, so so we're talking about. Um, the weeks and months leading up to the Olympics yeah. and what that what that looked like for you you said first of all um the fact that we made it yeah <laughs> and then i interrupted you so. yeah so it really just started to get as i mean there was a lot of nervousness there was a lot of tension in the team just because it's like oh this is happening we're we're gonna go to the olympics and line up like hmm. this is no more wishing and hoping like we're on the team then the, the naming date is done the roster is set yeah. We're, we're doing this. So there's that. Do you have like rotations in case there's injuries or anything like that? There are spares. Okay. So we, we do bring spares, um, one on each side of the boat. Okay. And then... Um, so yeah, you have so a team of 10 people training, essentially. If, essentially, yeah. And those two guys who were the spares were the spares for the whole team. So there were, like I said, other boat classes. Um, oh, okay. So if anyone got hurt, they would pop in or we would sort of shuffle as needed. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, whatever was the best for the best possible result. But um, but yeah, the, the intensity went up uh, just from an output level. So we were doing, you know, 
three by 1500 meters at all out as opposed to you know 20k steady state mm. for example um, and so it would just be a lot shorter sessions but a lot more intense and and really just trying to dial in the times the the splits and really the timing of the boat and bring bring some um, congruity to the crew mm. gotcha so which events did you end up competing in just the men's eight the eight yeah okay so you didn't you weren't able to do did they use people from the eight to do like the two and the one and the no um they are moving to a model of that probably in 2024 that will be more what happens but okay. um historically it's been like you focus on the one event Got because it. those two k's are so demanding uh physically that for you to repeat that multiple times a day sure. is yeah. just not possible right right especially over the course of a four to seven day regatta Okay, so this one has been a long time coming, and I'm excited to announce the launch of my new company, World Class Media. I've been doing podcast coaching and consulting for individuals and businesses for the last couple of years, and over the last few months, I just haven't been able to keep up with the requests. So in order to serve more people, I've decided to stop taking on coaching clients and start an agency that creates a done-for-you podcasting solution, as well as monthly production and repurposing services. So if you are a business owner, coach, consultant, entrepreneur, real estate investor, whatever it may be, then a podcast should be the most powerful business development tool in your arsenal. Imagine having something that is constantly engaging your ideal client, even when you're sleeping, or that allows you to connect with the top people in your industry to build your network and establish credibility, or that allows you to help listeners that are currently outside of your sphere of influence, or that helps you get book deals or speak on more stages or create content once that we can repurpose and distribute across all the platforms for you. That is the power of a world-class podcast that's done the right way. So if you're interested in starting a show, but you just don't have the time, the resources, or desire to figure out all the tech stuff, the hosting, the equipment, the platforms, the production, then you just focus on what you do best, which is serving your clients and running your business. And then let my team focus on what we do best, which is creating world-class chart-topping podcasts. Let's at least hop on a call and chat about it because I'm fairly picky with the people that I work with. And I only work with people who I genuinely think are going to be able to absolutely crush it with a new show. So head over to travischapel.com slash make my podcast. That's travischapel.com slash make my podcast. And we'll chat real soon. Okay, so you get down there and you're walking into this, you know, essentially a stage in front yeah. of the entire world with Team USA on your back. How, how did that feel? I imagine it would had to be a pretty cool moment. Yeah, it was. And in that moment really for us and for me specifically started in Houston where we had our, our processing, which is where you got your gear, uh, heard all the rules about social media and about um, you know, in-country specific stuff, because we're going to Rio de Janeiro, there's specific things you can and can't do there, hmm. um, as well as just the etiquette in the Olympic Village and some of that stuff. Um, so we, we were given our gear, we got walked through all these like Nike exhibits, Ralph Lauren exhibits, and like just gear dumped on you like you yeah. wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah. And they try, you tried on a few things, they tailored it, and then they like sent it to the airport for you to pick up that night before you got on your airplane. That's pretty awesome. It was, it was wild. Yeah. Um, but once we got into the Olympics, it's funny because you expect, like the, the version that we see in the United States when we're watching on TV on NBC is uh, trumpets and like 
glory and all this stuff, but you don't see all these like bus rides where everyone's kind of packed in and sort of trying to listen to their iPods or the, you know, you're in the cafeteria with all these other Olympic athletes who just are kind of frankly normal people. Mm. Um, and ev because everyone's sort of on the same level and there's not like a weird uh, enormity to the situation until you probably line up for your event, mm. which certainly when we lined up for the heat to go race we had the germans and the polish um specific those were the two we were most concerned about in our heat like that's when it gets real because they before every race they go germany lane one poland lane two usa lane three you know italy lane four whatever it was um and then it's like oh this is this isn't just like i'm rowing for my high school or my club this is like i'm representing our country in the olympic games yeah and here we go like something that's been so routine that's like you've been talking about it's insanely repetitive you're doing the same thing over and over again right in a sport where you literally your job is to do the same thing over and over again right as close to the previous one as possible right yep. and then you get up to the line and realize that oh this isn't like any other yeah. time I've ever done it before in my life. Yeah. Um, is there just the one race or is it like, is there multiple like qualifiers until you get to like the final race to medal? Like how does that whole process work? It depends on how many entries. And again, that's sort of determined by the, by the governing board of how many they're gonna give to each event. So the men's eight had seven. And so we had um, a heat of three, a heat of four. And then the top one, though the winner from each went straight into the final and the rest of us went to the repechage, and that was basically to eliminate one boat, effectively. But it was also to, to get your lean seating and put you in an ideal lane, because in rowing racing, uh, all things being equal, you want to be in the middle as opposed mm. to on the outside. Um, just because you can see what's going on, having someone on the other side of the race course, is, it's, it almost feels like you're not racing them, even though you are. Mm. But if you're in the middle, you kind of are in the mix of it and you can kind of feel the energy of the race better than if you're on the outside. And that's based on uh, ranking in the Right, heats. so heats and then your rankings in the rep as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So you said the rest of us went to this other thing, so you guys lost the first one? We were second in the heat. Second, okay. Yeah, gotcha. so we were second in the heat and so then we went into the rep and we won the rep okay. over the Netherlands. And then that put us in the third spot for the final. So you so. could potentially go to the Olympics and not even race for a medal. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So once you knew you're racing for a medal, is that same day, next day, five days later? So there's a day or so in between each. I don't remember the exact time, but the rowing events all take place in the first week. Um, <laughs> and I think it's six days roughly, but there's a lot of small boat events that have 20 or more entries in them so they have to go through a lot of rounds of racing to get through all that mm. hours is you know two maybe three trips down the course and you're done mm. um, so they kind of can spread out the men's aid a little bit differently and as i mentioned the it's sort of a, a marquee blue ribbon event it's the last race on the last day or the men's and the women's eights so it's kind of this one that's like the the one that everyone wants to watch so what are you doing in the in-between times like when you're not on the water, you know, that's yeah. five minutes of the day. Right. What are you doing the rest of the time? Like, is it, is it like an experience where you go watch some of the other things? Like, are you focused? Are you like thinking? Are you like, what would, yeah, you're, you you're very focused. You're going to see the trainers, you're going and doing some light work on the, 
on the rowing machine or on the exercise bike. We go practice because they would open the course up for practice during certain times of the day. Mm. And um, that would be a couple hours. So you would go down to the, go get in the boat, go take some strokes together, do some work just so you don't lose touch with the boat. Mm. Um, and then beyond that, it's like reading, trying to watch some movies and just like chill gotcha. as much as you can. Yeah, you're not, you don't want to be on your feet. You don't want to be distracted with other events and other results and mm. that sort of thing. You're really trying to stay dialed in as much as you can. Does that kind of focus just wear on you after a while? Yeah, because after the Olympics are over, whatever that means for each person, there's regardless of how happy or sad they are, there's also this like total sense of relief that you can just kind of like step out of that focus mm. and you can really actually frankly probably lower a wall down like my my dad got remarried while I was training and I met Deb his his wife and she said that after the Olympics she felt like that's the first time she actually met me because I had <laughs> this like shield up yeah because I just couldn't let much in because right. I was so focused and trying to just perfect this thing yeah um so yeah you absolutely have, can it, it's there's a relief moment regardless of how you feel about the result so talk to me about the result what happened in that last race we were ever obviously there were some nerves and uh the boat was moving okay in the warm-up it wasn't great and we sort of finally settled it in and it was feeling like okay i think we're ready to ready to get in and lock in and do this um we got off off the line okay we were we were definitely in the hunt through 500 meters like with uh, i think it was five boats within a second so it was still pretty wow. tight as would be expected for the men's eight um and then that second 500 uh was when some of the wind picked up and our and our technique just just came off enough that we sort of fell back a little bit and then from there we just i think we just kind of held a a margin and, and eight back into the leaders, uh, probably in the last 500 or so. But how was, many? How many boats total? Six. So six. Okay. So you're going for obviously top three. Right. Spots. Right. And uh, ultimately, you know, it was a odd, we got fourth. Um, so it was a pretty disappointing result, given that we had a shot to and had a desire to medal. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was it was uh, not our not our moment, I guess, because really each guy can be really ready, or girl, can be really ready to perform, but, but there has to be something else, some extra sort of X factor that, that brings a crew together, and I've sure. been on both sides of that, and we just didn't have that like last little thing, whatever mm. that thing was on that day. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Was it difficult to deal with that? afterwards like we're like i know that you said there's a sense of relief but also yeah. was it kind of like a that was my only shot or what was that like um yeah i didn't i didn't think about that being my only shot necessarily but i really you know i mean it was sad like it like i cried with my mom in the kiss and cry section for i don't know how long but that was like of the I don't know how many times I cried in my rowing career, but it was definitely less than five, and that was one of them that yeah. sticks out. And it was like, aside from the result, it was just an unloading of four, really five, six years of, of high-level training post-college sure. um, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. 
Yeah. And um, and then you know you try and go and enjoy the event. I, I tried to go and enjoy the events. I there's like a few days left at that point, or half the Olympics is still going actually. Oh, okay. So I was done halfway through. So, so through. The, the the race is on the last day of the first week. Correct. Gotcha. So and there's then, still another week of. And there's another week of competition. So it's basically you can do whatever you want. Your badge gets you in pretty much anywhere. Yeah. You can get tickets to almost any event and just go party and have fun. There's no curfew. There's no coaches. There's no. Right. For the first time in yeah. a really long time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Which I took advantage of and I went and saw events and did some parties and stuff. But like it was hard to enjoy for me because mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Was there anybody that you were wanting to meet in particular, like any sort of Olympic athletes that you looked up to that you were like, you know, oh, it'd be so cool to go meet that person or watch mm -hmm. their event or? Um, I mean, I thought it would be cool to go see Usain Bolt run, and I mm -hmm. did. And I went and saw saw him run in one of the relays. I don't really remember what it was. Yeah. Um, but no, I honestly had this mentality that I was like, like I didn't want to go support them for whatever reason because I felt like I was um, like I should have been one of the guys who was meddling and so I was like bitter about it mm. for a while yeah because I, I felt like I had the the stuff the intangible like the the physical results and the stuff to like be one of those medalists and I just I didn't handle it in a healthy way sure during the games sure and it makes a lot of sense especially when especially because the Olympics like you it's all just a bunch of young people. You yeah, know, you haven't lived a ton of life and you kind of have those, you know, that chip on your shoulder still and you have that, yeah. that mentality that comes with youth. Yeah. Um, how, how long do you think it took you to really get over that? I mean, to some degree, I don't know that I'm totally over it, but I think I've come to terms with it and, and redefined what that whole experience meant. So in yeah. that way, I guess I am realistically like a year and a half afterwards Yeah. because that it took me, you know, I went to some therapy and I went and had a, I did a life coach. He really helped me as well mm. just to really kind of define what that actually meant. Like the whole experience meant, um, regardless of the result. So what did you do after that, man? Like after you are competing at the highest level in the world and then yeah. you realize that I'm not going to do that anymore. Did you have a backup plan? Like what was your major in college? Did you think about going that route? Yeah. Like what happened? Um, I was a business major with a focus on entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, which okay. basically means with with a class funding, we started a company inside of a class, hmm. which was a really cool experience because it got me a ton of exposure to business in a very short amount of time in a practical way, not just like a book way. Hmm. So I figured I would, I honestly thought I would get into sales, like I would go into sort of a, honestly like a Grant Cardone sort of boiler room style kind of yeah, place. Yeah. And then when I really started to think about what that would look like on a daily basis, I wasn't ready to go to an office and put on a suit and do all that stuff. Um, yeah, and put on a headset and press an auto dialer for eight hours a day. Yeah, yeah. and just get fired up and have sales meetings or, or just whatever version of office that meant. I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, right. And the commute and all that stuff. Um, so real estate was in in my family for a really long time. Um, my uncles, my grandfather are developers. My dad's a real estate attorney. Hmm. His brother owns some apartment buildings. So it's sort of just been around me and I always figured that's a place I would go. Um, and it wasn't until a week or two after the Olympics that my, actually an Airbnb host from Southern California when I went and stayed with them for some training trips, 
uh, reached out and was like, hey, now that you're done training for a little bit, do you want to talk about some real estate stuff? Because they were agents and they were flipping and they were doing some cool things. Hmm. Um, so I, my wife and I flew down to California or Southern California and met with them for a couple days. And they proposed basically that I start a, uh, a satellite office in the Bay Area of their team, use all their back end, and then just make cold calls and mm. try and get people to buy or sell real estate with us. Yeah. Um, and I took them up on that because it sounded way more flexible. They, they were supporting me if I wanted to go back to rowing. And, mm. uh, and that's how I really ultimately got my start. Did you think about going back to rowing? Oh yeah. I gave myself until October of 2018 to decide if I was going to go back or not. Mm -hmm. And by that time I was really enjoying real estate. I was in my second team and was just like, you know, I think there are other mountains to climb other than going mm -hmm. back. Yeah. Cause the metal, like I said, the year and a half it took me to sort of process all of that. The metal didn't define my experience. Like, yeah, it'd be really freaking cool to have an Olympic medal, but mm -hmm. like, I knew that I did what I needed to do personally to medal and to mm. be a medalist. Yeah. I knew what I was capable of and ultimately the experience of pursuing that um, outweighed the lack of a medal and that's and I got what I wanted to get out of it and yeah. decided there there were other things to go try and accomplish. Sure. So you said my wife and I flew down. So mm -hmm. what point in all of this did you start dating and yeah well married. at the time we flew down we were just dating um, but we had been doing long distance she's also a rower and uh, rode on the Olympic team in London which was 2012 awesome um, we had been dating since 2013 and then I we did about a year apart while I was training and then we finally got to be together with no rowing for the first time <laughs> in uh, in uh, I guess September of 2016 okay and then um, so she was not rowing really in the 16 Olympics. No, she okay. she retired for a variety of reasons, but yeah, she After she retired um, a year and a half prior to that. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so now you're in real estate. Yep. What do you what do you do now that you can totally trace back directly to you know, level of focus that you had, level of discipline that you had, level of, um, of high performance that you had that you've now turned around and implemented into the real estate game that's now allowed you to become a top performer in a super competitive industry in a very competitive market. The, the sort of cliche stuff is really true. Um, as much as I hate to give these answers, it's like being coachable. Find, well, finding a coach, finding a mentor was critical and I've been fortunate to have two now in my real estate career that are direct mentors and have helped me get to various levels. Hmm. Um, and then being a sponge when it comes to actually learning and Im implementing what it is that they're teaching me. Yeah. And that like when, when I found when you just absorb and you apply and then you go out and you're like, Hey, hmm. I tried this, but it didn't work or it worked this way, but not that way. Um, they're going to want to pour into you more. Hmm. And I noticed that really quickly. So that was a huge one. And then learning to be like physically uncomfortable when you're rowing and trying to be like, have your oar go in the water at a perfect timing while your heart rate's at 192 and you know, you've got a lactate level through the roof. It's you keeping your head screwed on straight when things are painful. Like mm. physically it doesn't get painful in real estate, but yeah. 
in a negotiation when you're competing against you know a bunch of other offers like that can be uncomfortable in its own yeah. way the calm in the storm and that is something that I've learned to harness and not to get so tied into the emotion of the moment and really to keep my head screwed on and, and frankly not spend clients money or try and leverage some other offers into more money for the client if they're trying to sell yeah yeah and um, yeah that I mean those are the the really big ones and then goal setting like that's a yeah. just tracking like and time management and stuff like that goal setting time management all that sort of stuff just having reps of like having to you only have so many hours to do your homework because yeah. you've got practice and you've got class yeah. you know figuring out when things will fit in and then how it all feeds into a bigger goal when it gets tough yeah are you pretty strict with that stuff still to this day i've loosened up on a, some things just because i think some you gotta like relax your relax yourself, you can't be too high strung all the time. And I was pretty high strung with goals and all of that for a long time with, hmm. with rowing. So I've kind of gone in and out of that world. Okay. Um, but I, I still have goals up on my wall that I look at every day. I still write them down every morning. I still engage and focus on them and track where I'm at. So I'm you know, not just wondering if I'm gonna hit it, yeah. like paying attention to the, to the metrics or the progress that I'm making through the year. Yeah. Talk to me about self-awareness. Like how important has that been for you? Cause I feel like it takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness to do anything at that high of a level, like to understand, cause that I think is half the battle, right? Because I think just a lot of people don't pursue stuff like that because they don't know that's what they want. They right. don't know that that's them. Like, you know, the, those are the guys that show up for the first few days of tryouts. And then afterwards they're like, this is not worth it for me. Right. Like, the amount, like I understand what's what it takes, I'm not I'm not willing to put that work in. Yeah. You know what I mean? So how how have you used like self-awareness in your, you know, career in terms of like Olympic rowing but also now in real estate? A big humbling moment for me which helped develop my self-awareness was getting cut from the 2016 or 2012 team. Hmm. And I had sort of metrics on paper that really made me a contender and that and I learned very quickly that it wasn't just that it wasn't just putting up numbers on the on the erg or you know even having like a couple of good really good seat races or, or times in the boat um, there was there was more to it than that and mm. and it's like being a good teammate being a team frankly being a team player you know you're literally in the same boat supporting one another so you have to figure out how to be that person for the other guys yeah and um, taking taking sort of a humility pill, like I was bitter about being cut and I was like, oh, well, I hope they go lose and I hope they're whatever. And, yeah. and, and it, you know, in retrospect, like I wasn't, like I physically, I think was ready, but I wasn't mentally or sort of emotionally ready to be on that stage and be part of that group. Hmm. And so as I've taken that into, uh, you know, podcasting or real estate or some of these other things that I'm doing now, you know, really having a, a fair self-assessment of where I'm at and what I'm good at, what I need improvement on, where I can use help and just, and then being able to ask for help and, and pull in a mentor or pull in a coach mm -hmm. for those areas has been huge for me and, and not being afraid to ask, ask when you need it. So you mentioned podcasting. Yep. Let's talk about that for a second. So talk to me how you came to the decision to go ahead and start your show. And then what have been, you know, a couple of the top main benefits uh, that you've seen so far? 
I mean, you, you listen to Gary Vanderchuk for 10 seconds and he's like, make content, especially if you're a real estate agent. He's like, yeah. make content yesterday. Yeah. And so I was always, I was struggling with like, what does that mean? And then I would research or listen to podcasts or read books about, you know, content creation or like what other people were doing. And then it kind of came down to like vlogging, blogging, or podcasting as sort of the three mediums that I had in mind. And on, and then it was when I heard you on the Bigger Pocket show, because I invest in real estate outside of my real estate practice, mm-hmm. um, and I love that show because of the education there. Yeah. But I heard you there, and you you said something that I then followed your show, and then you were talking about um, using it to build your network. Mm. And I was like, oh. Now I see why A, B, and B, and C go together, and I see a bridge here as to why I would be doing this. Right. And so then I reached out to you, and we ended up doing a, a VIP day, and I recognized that it's not so much, like, it's content, like, you want to put out good stuff for people to enjoy and to, like, build your brand, but it's just as much about having an excuse to reach out to people and to get to know other people, and I'm 40... I think 43, 42 episodes in now oh, nice. on my show. Thank you. Um, thanks to you. I'm at 43 <laughs> episodes. Um, and Eric, who's editing this right now. But the biggest takeaways have certainly been starting to develop my voice and trying to understand what I stand for, I yeah. guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. And then also just having an excuse to ask people questions that I want to ask and and build a relationship with them and you know now I have these people's emails and I have a 45 minute conversation with them that has you know started a relationship that I wouldn't otherwise have and I for example have a guy on my show the other day two days later he he is a he's like a CFO for hire he does kind of outsourcing CFO solutions for people and I was talking at our team meeting and someone said something that was like, man, we really need to learn the profitability of this or that. And I was like, I know a guy. Yeah. And I just like, and so I was like, sent that over to the team and they're like, let's look at this. And, and so just even some of that sort of interweaving, like when I invited him on the show, I didn't know that we were going to need yeah. a service like right, that, exactly. but here we are. And now hopefully that will help our business. Yeah. Just like Steve Jobs said, right? You can only join up the dots when you look back. You can't do it looking forward. Right. Um, but you can yeah. put yourself in those positions to have to have chances. more dots right. to connect. Totally. Right? Yep. Yep. Which is exactly what you're doing, essentially. Right. right. And I, I'm glad you brought that up too, because like, obviously, I produce podcasts and teach podcasting for a living. Right. And uh, that's one of the questions that I get a lot. Is like, I just, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know why I would have a podcast. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really necessarily want to become Gary Vaynerchuk or or Lewis Howes or Jordan right. Harbinger or one of those guys. And that's basically what I explained to them is like, it's not about that. Like if the downloads come great, if right. not, there's still a laundry list of reasons to podcast, building yeah. a network chief among them, right. um, but also being exposed to different things that you weren't previously exposed to, like what you're saying, the CFO thing. It makes you a more valuable person because it gives you more uh, knowledge around the topics that you're talking about all the time. Right. So like it's the perfect accountability partner to continue learning and educating yourself mm-hmm. like if i didn't have a show there's no way that i would be reading you know 30 to 50 books a year like right. i do that because i feel an obligation to continue making my content better for my audience right like if i didn't have that 
I wouldn't feel that constant pressure to continue making myself better and to continue learning, to right. continue, to continue educating myself and getting better at my craft. Right. Um, and so yeah, yeah, there's just so many reasons to do it. And at the top of the list has to be just biz dev right. in general. Like if, if you have a business, if you're a solopreneur or entrepreneur, whatever it is, and like you don't have a podcast, you, you should genuinely look at it just to say, you know what, like, this is my number one automated biz dev tool yeah. that just allows me to have conversations with people and like plant the seed for potential sales conversations to bring in more revenue and more opportunities into my business. And to give you an example in my life that just happened relative to the podcast, there's a guy who wrote it, University of Cal Berkeley, a couple years below me, we overlapped. We knew we know a lot of the same people. We know each other very casually, but not mm -hmm. we're not friends. I wouldn't call him or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but he reached out because I've been posting my podcast on social media. He's like, "Yo, I've really liked what you're doing. I'm now at uh, the private banking arm of Bank of America. I think that we have a lot of synergy together. Like, would you get on a call with me?" So I did. He's got some really fantastic loan products, but more importantly, he just introduced me to someone in my area who I think is going to be a great referral partner for my real estate business. Hmm. And it all started because he saw me posting my podcast stuff. Yeah. And it, you know, it's just like, you couldn't, you couldn't predict that. You, yeah. You can't measure the ROI of that either. Right. But because you're putting content out there, people see it, people engage with it. And then, you know, they think of you for stuff. Top of mind awareness, man. It's, yeah. If you continually put out content that's relevant to what you do, then you will become top of mind for that particular segment of things. Yeah. Um, and the the thing is, everybody thinks that everybody knows what they do. You know what I mean? Like you, before you started the podcast, would probably be like, yeah, my network knows that I'm in real estate. You know, but until you're putting out content like that, this consistently and talking about it here and posting out a blog post here and a podcast here and bringing on this other guest and promoting right. and promoting and like talking about all of it, that stuff doesn't happen. Like right. they're not like that guy's not just sitting at his desk wondering like, who can I, uh, you know, who can I send a referral partner to in the Bay area? Like yeah. he's probably, he didn't think about that at all. He just yeah. saw something come up in his post and then he went, Oh, I actually have a guy that might be a good introduction there. Right. Um, I should jump on a call with him. Like you're just continually getting in front of people's faces with valuable stuff, right? right. So that's the that's the caveat is that you're not just posting blatant sales pitches because that's what right. every MLMer in the history of MLMs does, right? right? Like they sign up with freaking, you know, Herbalife yeah. or whatever, you know what I mean? And then like yeah. all of a sudden their Facebook feed is nothing but like, this is the best thing in the world and yeah, you should, yeah, yeah. you know, let's talk about it. Hit me up, like buy this, right? Like you're not doing that. Yep. You're providing real value, but you're yep. doing it consistently through a predictable medium that allows you to build conversations with your audience, but also with the people in your industry or niche that you really want to anyway. Right. Like it, it's just the perfect, perfect biz dev tool. And, and when he introduced me to this guy, he's like, Oh, he's a UW rower. And the, and the other guy, the, the referral partner is a Cal rower. So we have a really strong rivalry between those two schools. So there's like some jabbing back and forth, which already was kind of fun. And it obviously got foot in the door. And he's like, Oh, and by the way, he's got this really cool podcast. The referral partner doesn't care anything about podcasts. He's running a CPA firm that's his family business for three generations. Mm. He's growing it. Like he just the fact that he added that in, it like added just this extra layer of like he's doing things. Authority. He's like a mover shaker yeah. guy. Yep. Like you gotta know him. Yep, exactly. Yep. It's just that 
it's just that credibility. It's so hard to try to explain to people. And you probably remember when we first had our initial conversation, those were the things that I was trying to explain to you. That's yeah. so hard for me sometimes to put into words because like you said, you can't me necessarily measure it sometimes. Sometimes you can, sometimes right. you will get a deal directly because of a relationship that came off and you can say, hey, that was $12,000 that I got from being on right. that podcast or from having that conversation whatever. But a lot of the times it's just good stuff that happens, opportunities that come along that you right. can't necessarily put a dollar amount on quite yet, right. but they're good for you, they're good for your future, and they're good for the potential of your business. And uh, you just can't, can't measure that kind of stuff and you can't predict it either. Agreed, totally. Well, listen, man, uh, we're coming down here to the end, and I, I wanna just, first of all, commend you for all the hard work and focus that it took to be an Olympic athlete. Um, I feel like in a different life, that would have been a path that I pursued um, had I not grown up the way that I grew up yeah. uh, specifically, but um, you know, that's such a high honor, and for anybody to be able to make it to that level of, of competition, I have tremendous respect for that. And, um, and that's why I you know, want to bring you on the show and things too, is to showcase what you're doing uh, with real estate and everything now, because you, like I said, when you have been able to compete at that high of a level, you have an understanding of what it takes to become the best that most people will never, ever, ever understand. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, I think that you genuinely are one of those people that if you just keep an eye on you in the next five, 10 years, you'll continually con like rise to the top and whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and so I appreciate you for, for coming on. Absolutely. What's the last, like last thing that you would want to leave the, the audience with? If you, you know, uh, been asking a couple people questions similar to this, like if you could, if you could guarantee that a video would go viral and that everybody in the country would see it by the end of the week, what would be the main message that you would want to have in that video? That's a big opportunity. <laughs> That's a big opportunity. <laughs> that I think that if you, um, you reach up to the people who you respect as well as um, build relationships with the people that you're sort of at a level with and then mentor people below you to some degree, like that is, I think, one of the fastest ways to get to where it is you're trying to go. There's a, you know, it's, and, and it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Caveat on the yeah. end there. Um, I, I'm impatient and I will admit that. I'll be the first <laughs> to admit that. I yeah. want it yesterday. I'm a millennial, like whatever stereotype sure. you want to beg on yeah. that. Competitor. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and there are, there are certain things that just can't happen that fast. But if you surround yourself on all three tiers with the right people, that will, that will lift you to the, the place that you want to go as quickly as possible. Yeah, love that. I can't even add anything to that because that's exactly the whole reason that this show even exists, is just to prove that principle to people. Um, that if you continue reaching up and getting around high quality people, you will either raise to their level or you'll be forced out of those circles. So like yeah. one of them, one or two, one of the, like one of those two things is gonna happen, right? Like you can't hang around people like that for um, any length of time without either like having to go back down or up-leveling yourself and becoming that level of person. So, totally. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. Um, last question, and then we'll uh, take off. Who you know or what you know, Hans, which one's more important? Well, I've listened to a handful of your episodes, and I've thought about this when I'm driving to and from real estate appointments. So <laughs> um, I think it starts with who, with what you know. Okay. Um, I think to, to be valuable in a room, you have to have some substance. Hmm. However, I think that stops pretty quickly 
once you get sort of a very basic level of competence of competence yeah. around a su some subject matter, even if you just bring one sentence into the conversation, at least you, they know you're alive and you have a pulse. And mm -hmm. then it's like what you you bring one or two things into the conversation, um, then it's then you can learn the rest from everybody else. Yeah, and uh, really, you know, supercharge your growth from there. Yeah, that's the key right there, man. Is is that I find that getting around those people who are the best is a much better learning scenario than just reading a book about it or you know doing a Google search. Right. Like getting around the people who do it at the highest level is only going to rub off on you and you'll learn way more from them. So, um, and, and that's why I, I like the way that you said that because some people come on here and say, oh, it's what you know for sure because you know, if you get into a room of people but you're not good at what you do, then it doesn't matter. Well, it's just right. like, okay, but that's just a stage, right? Like if you can get into a room of people that are awesome at what they do and you're 19 years old and you have zero experience, that doesn't mean that you can't be in that room. Right. It just means your role in that room is going to be different. Yeah. You're not gonna be one of their peers, but right. you can get in the room yeah. and you can be an employee and you can be their junior sales rep you can be their, you know, social media marketer. Right. Like you can do something to get in those rooms to learn at an accelerated rate. And all you have to do to look at proof of that is like look at people who worked with the top people in the world and look what they do now. Yep. You know what I mean? So the perfect example, and I have dozens of these examples. I keep going on and on, but a perfect example just off the top of my head that I'm thinking about is Amy Porterfield. She's a multi, multi seven figure online marketer and one of the best in the space. And um, she got her start working on Tony Robbins marketing team mm -hmm. and helped him implement their like marketing to the online world with legends like Frank Kern and other like online marketing legends have been doing this for you know, you know, as long as the internet's been in existence, she was part of the marketing team that helped move Tony's stuff from like just infomercials and traditional marketing to online. What, I mean, she was getting paid to be there. She's not gonna be a millionaire being that employee, right. but she gets to sit in on those conversations and implement the things that those like marketing legends are telling that team to do. Of course she's going to see accelerated yep. success. She's getting access to the very best knowledge and she's getting paid to learn it. Yep. As an employee, so like, yeah, I, I just I'm so such a believer in that because you don't you don't have to immediately be a peer right. to those people. You just got to get in the room and prove that you can stay there. Meaning that like your competence doesn't even necessarily need to be in that vertical as a skill set. It just needs to be like you're ambitious, you work hard, and you're willing to learn. Yeah. Like if you can be ambitious, work hard, and be willing to learn, get in a room with people who are crushing it, and you're gonna have accelerated success. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, listen, man, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, we'll get this all wrapped up and uh, and sent out. So, any final closing things? Any any where, like where do you want people to connect with you the most? Yeah, the uh, website is certainly a place to do that. I'm I'm in the process of retooling it, but it'll stay at the same URL, which is Hans Struzina S T R U Z Y N A dot com. And then Instagram is where I'm most active on social, which is at Chief Sna, spelled S-N-A-H. Sweet. Awesome. And then also, if you're listening to this on iTunes, whatever podcast player you're listening to this on, if you're watching on YouTube, um, make sure to go to your favorite podcast player and search Another Way to Play. Or you could probably just search Hans Struzina, because I doubt there's a lot of those out there. Um, and, uh, and you'll be able to pull up his stuff really quickly. Highly recommend subscribing to his show, checking it out, and uh, reaching out to say what's up. Hans, thanks so much, man. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Appreciate you.
Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies, as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls, there's accountability crews and more all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.